Let me encourage you to have your Bible open at Mark chapter 7. J.C. Ryle, who you know I like to quote from time to time, he said about this passage, it's one of those scriptures which ought to be frequently and diligently studied by all who desire the prosperity of the Church of Christ. Well, let's take a look at this passage and see if we agree with him. I've given this message the title, Getting to the Heart of the Matter. And that's what Jesus really does in the events that unfold in this seventh chapter of Mark's Gospel. And I want to break down these first 23 verses of the chapter into three sections. And so first of all, we're going to consider verses one to six. And here, I want us to see that Jesus addresses that which he sees in the Pharisees and those who are like them. Because what he sees are empty actions and what he hears are empty words. Have you ever been visiting at someone's house, perhaps you've shared a meal together and afterwards, because you are the very best of guests, you offer to help to clear the table, take all the dishes out into the kitchen and you know that your host has a dishwasher and so you begin to load it for them. Big mistake. No one else can possibly know how to stack and load their dishwasher. There's usually, as I've observed, one person in the household who has taken it upon themselves to be the official dishwasher loader. And it often seems to be the man of the house because women apparently can't possibly understand the mechanics of anything as complicated as a dishwasher. They've managed the cooker, the microwave, the food mixer, the washing machine, the school run, shopping and just about everything else that keeps their home running so smoothly. They can even plait their own hair with their hands behind their heads. Ladies, how do you do that? But the dishwasher, stand aside dear, this is man's work. And his dishwasher has to be stacked just so. It's kind of that attitude that is seen in Jewish religion at the time of Christ. And their religion has got to the stage where the only thing that really matters is what is done, when it's done, and how it is done. Washing your hands has been a big message during this coronavirus. And to the point where we've been told how long you should take to wash your hands and several little ditties have been mentioned that you may wish to sing while you're washing your hands in order that you do it properly. But even that pales compared to the palaver that the strict religious Jews went through with these ceremonial washings that took place before and after every meal. 
there was a set routine that you had to follow. This hand washed like this, then the other hand washed like that. Now your forearms, no, you've done it the wrong way round. Start again. The same for all the dishes and pots and pans, all washed in a specific order, each item being washed in a specific way. And even how you wipe down the couch that you've been sitting on. And for the most part, none of this has anything to do with hygiene. All of this has its roots back in the Old Testament law. But over the years, these things have become more and more elaborate as men have added their own little twists and turns and their own little points of emphasis until they found themselves a world away from what God really wants from them. And so these men, when they make this complaint about the disciples of Jesus not having washed their hands, it's this ritualistic washing that they're referring to, as Jesus mentions in verses 3 and 4. I've mentioned it before that in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, a section of the Bible that we tend to only ever think of as being all about law keeping and being quite cold, we actually discover there in that book that issues of the heart are mentioned by God more than 40 times. But religion in the time of Christ has largely become an issue only of these ritualistic observances. It's all about being in the right place at the right time so that you can do the right things in the right way and say the right words when you're supposed to say them. It's become a religion of external things only. And as the passage tells us, their hearts are far away from God. Now, as we'll see shortly, external things are not necessarily without value or usefulness. External things can have a purpose and be helpful. But what God is supremely concerned about is the state of your heart before him. That should be your supreme concern too. Now it's true, you see, that if your heart is right with God, then much of the rest of your life will be brought into alignment with his word. The two go together. Love for Christ and obedience to Christ are put together in the Bible. But the obedience is always seen as being the evidence and proof of your love. Your obedience to Christ is the outworking of your love for him. If you were to say, I love Christ because I obey him, that just doesn't sound right, does it? That just doesn't ring true somehow because that isn't how it is. But if you were to say, I obey Christ because I love him, 
that does ring true in the human soul because that is how God created you and I to be. It's not just what the Bible teaches. We know in our hearts that that is right and good. Whenever a boy falls for a girl or a girl falls for a boy, all of a sudden it seems as if their entire world revolves around them. Why? Well, it's because they've captured their heart. And that's how it ought to be for us as the Lord's people. We are those and the Lord has captured our hearts. I mentioned the frequency with which the heart is mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy. And there you'll find God speaking of you and I seeking God with all your heart, loving him with all your heart, serving him with all your heart, having his word and his commandments in your heart, being upright in heart. When you come together with Christ's people to worship, to pray, as you read your Bible at home, in all of your daily activities, what is the state of your heart before God? Is your life simply about conforming to outward appearance so that you look a certain way or do you truly love the Lord, your God and Father, with all your heart and from that flows everything else. It is possible to be the very picture of a Christian man or woman and yet your heart is very far away from God. Indeed, it may be that it is only really you and God who know just how far away your heart really is. Conversely, it may also be that for others, and perhaps even for yourself, you perhaps seem so much poorer in speech than other Christians, wanting in gifts compared to other Christians, limited in service, weaker in faith. And yet, your heart is right. Your worship is pure. Your prayers are being heard. Their lips are saying all the right things, said Jesus. But their heart is far from me. How is it with you this morning? How far away is your heart? Or are you drawing near in close communion with your God and Saviour? As Jesus continues, we see secondly in this passage that he points out 
the rights and the wrongs of tradition. Of course, he's particularly thinking about these Pharisees who are in front of him as he's speaking, but there's a lot of application here for ourselves as well. You'll see in the passage that the phrase, the tradition of the elders, is used twice, uh, verse 3 and verse 5. And then three more times in verses 8 to 13, the word tradition may be found. And this is obviously playing a big part in the lives of the Pharisees and, and is something that Jesus needs to address. Now, when you look at that phrase, the tradition of the elders, you need to be careful how you view it. The point that Jesus is making is not that tradition in itself is wrong, but it's the type of tradition that they are following that is the wrong type of tradition. You could pick up on those, phra those phrases, the tradition of the elders, and conclude, for example, that all tradition in the church is wrong. Therefore, everything in the church ought to be constantly changing. I've met a lot of people who think that way. But that's actually an incorrect understanding of what's being said here. Tradition itself isn't necessarily sinful or wrong. Think about Joseph and Mary, for example. They went to the temple to observe the required thank offerings for the birth of Christ and had Jesus circumcised when he was eight days old. Jesus always went to Jerusalem to attend and observe the major feasts and festivals. Jesus and the Apostle Paul are recorded as always attending synagogue on the Sabbath morning, as was their custom. Or we might say, as was their tradition. All of these things can be described as traditions, and all of them are very good if they're being done for the right reason. If they're being done from the place of a good heart. The problem that Jesus is highlighting here is which tradition is it that you're following? And for the Pharisees, it's the tradition of the elders. He's talking about a tradition which, for the most part, became established during the 400 years between the Old and New Testaments, which was when these men who in the New Testament are introduced to us as Pharisees, it's during that 400-year period that the Pharisees became established and became prominent in Jewish society. But they've wandered far away from that which was originally given by God and intended by God. They have these many man-made traditions, all of which have their origins in seeking to follow the Old Testament law. But the problem has been that very gradually the focus has shifted away from heartfelt obedience to the scriptures out of love for God and instead it's moved towards a fascination with and a dependence upon 
all of these elaborate rituals until they've reached the stage where these elaborate rituals have become their religion. From verse 7, that's what Jesus is talking about. He quotes an example which shows how it is that in following their tradition, they've got themselves in the position where they're actually living in disobedience to the word of God. The Pharisees have developed this tradition whereby they would declare that all of their possessions were dedicated to the temple, consecrated and dedicated to God, and thereby could not be used for any other purpose or reason. This has become part of their salvation by works in many ways. This is part of the self-righteousness in which they were so proud. Um, it probably was a cause of boasting for many of them. I've declared all my possessions as Corban. They are uh, dedicated to the Lord. Uh, look at uh, this great thing I've done. Well, good for you, says Jesus, but shame on you if that means that you are now leaving your elderly parents destitute in their old age, as would have been the case with no welfare state to fall back on. How dare you neglect your God-given duty of honouring and caring for your elderly mother and father simply because you have decided that all of your world's goods are dedicated to the temple and so can't be used to help your mum and dad. The commands of God have been laid aside and usurped by a man-made tradition. And that's what Jesus is calling them out for in this passage. So how are we to work out this issue of traditions as Christians in the 21st century? Clearly, there is a way in which these things can be very, very wrong and can actually take us far away from where God would have us be. Well, it's interesting that in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonian church in chapter 6, Paul uses the word tradition there and he uses the word tradition to speak about that body of doctrine and the application of it which he used to teach amongst the churches. And so he sees that as being a perfectly acceptable use of the word tradition. We can point at the statement of faith in our constitution, for example, as a local church, and we can rightly declare that it is our doctrinal tradition. Or we can do the same with the rules and regulations of how we organise and govern ourselves as a local church. That's our tradition. That's the practice that is handed from one generation to the next. When we worship, we have an understanding that worship ought to contain certain elements and that actually worship consists only of those elements because that's what the Bible teaches and that is our tradition. 
Tradition falls broadly into two main categories. We have a tradition in terms of what we believe. And that's a fixed and unchanging tradition. Why? Well, because it's so clearly taught in the Bible and the Bible is fixed and unchanging. And so the tradition of our doctrine is fixed and unchanging. We have a tradition in terms of how that doctrine ought to be seen and work itself out in the life of a Christian believer in terms of a godly and Christ-like character. Why do we have that tradition? Because it's something that's clearly taught in the Bible, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the parables of Jesus, in the letters of the apostles, the good examples that we have in the Word of God. The lives of Christians ought to follow a certain type of tradition of love, joy and peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness and faith meekness and self-control, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. That's the tradition, we could say, that we all ought to be walking in. This is all a good and correct way of viewing tradition and holding to it. But tradition can also cover those things which are not specifically prescribed in the Bible but they are extremely helpful things. They enable us to keep ourselves in biblical truths and principles. So, for example, the early church met together on the first day of the week, every week. And so do we. We're not told what time to meet. We're not told how often we should meet. But it's supremely helpful to meet in a set place at a set time that is known to all in the church. Kind of makes sense really, doesn't it? And we do so for worship on a Sunday. We do that to pray on a Wednesday. We do that for the children and young people on Friday evenings and so on. On a Sunday, it's supremely helpful to meet both in the morning and again in the evening. And it's helpful because it helps us to remember that it's supposed to be the entire day which is set aside as the Lord's day. We don't have a prescribed order of service for our Sunday worship in the Bible. But it does tell us which elements are to be included. And so an order of service helps us to keep to them and to always include them and not to allow other things to be added and to keep on impinging upon them. And so it's really useful. And in all things we are commanded to ensure that everything is done decently and in order. And so having an order of service helps us to keep to that principle. In our times together on Sundays, chaos and uncertainty about what will happen next should never make an appearance. And so these are traditions 
which are real helps. But at the same time, we recognise and we acknowledge that that is all they are and that none of them are written on stone tablets. It would be very foolhardy to suggest that they have no useful function and that we would mess around with them indiscriminately. They do have clear biblical principles undergirding them. But these things in themselves, these outward forms, they are not to be or to become the centre and the focus of our faith. And you would still be a Christian man or woman without many of those things. And so whilst many of our traditions help to give us a practical framework within which we live and serve and worship, those things in themselves must never become so dominant that for us, those things and the keeping of them actually become our religion and our faith. And that's all it's about. And these things in themselves become holy items that no one dare ever touch. Even what time we meet on a Sunday, for example. Our lives are to be governed by the word of God. With hearts that are right before him. How do we make sure that, that these things never become so dominant that they actually begin to control us and that they actually can take the place of the word of God? Which was the problem that was, happened, that was happening with the Pharisees all the time. Their own traditions have taken the place of God's word. Well, just to go back to J.C. Ryle for a second, he understood and knew what the answer was in order that we can keep things right in our own thinking. He said this, It must not content us to bring our bodies to church if we leave our hearts at home. If our coming to worship on a Sunday is just about being in a certain place at a certain time to do a certain thing in a certain way with certain words. Kind of starting to sound like the Pharisees, aren't we? And our heart just not isn't it just isn't in it anywhere. Knowing God, loving God, serving God, worshipping God pleasing and obeying God, communing with God through Christ, by grace, in faith, with all your heart. That must remain the centre and the focus of it all. And nothing must ever be allowed to come in and take a higher place or even an equal place to that coming with a full 
heart before the Lord. And that thirdly moves us on to think about the truth about your heart which begins at verse 14 and takes us through to verse 23. The heart is this combination of what you think and what you desire and what it is that is driving the inner you, that which lies in the depth of your soul. One of the reasons why the Pharisees were so infatuated with these external washings was because they believed that the things from the outside world could enter your body and pollute you spiritually on the inside. And that's why they, they were so fastidious over the issue of washing, for example. Because if this dirt, if this contamination from the world gets onto me and gets into me, then spiritually that will affect me. But Jesus says that simply is not true. Nothing, he says at verse 15 and 18, nothing that enters anyone from the outside can ever defile them. Why does he say that? Well, the stunning truth that's brought home from verse 20 to the end at verse 23, the stunning truth is that the defilement is already there. Now, can external things like what you see, what you hear, what you're taught, the examples that are placed before you. Can these either be good and positive or bad and negative? Yes, of course. Can these things have an influence upon you? Well, of course they do. But you see, what these verses bring us here, what the teaching of Christ reveals to us, is that even the worst upbringing in the most depraved home does not cause a child to become something which they were not already. It does not cause that child to become wicked from a starting point of goodness. Any more than raising a child in a godly home prevents them from demonstrating in no time at all that their heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. A godly upbringing can help to suppress the wickedness that lurks in a child's heart. An ungodly one can encourage that, wick that wickedness to become manifest but it's a wickedness that already lurks there. A child's conscience can be hardened or softened to some degree by the environment in which they live. But this truth has to be grasped and understood 
and faced up to in verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts. In the heart of every newborn child lies every evil which any man or woman has ever invented or imagined. It's already there in their heart. All of these things are bound up in the heart of a child. Evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. You don't have to send a child to the school of wickedness for them to discover those things or learn them. They are all there within their heart. Such is the nature of the sinful heart. The seeds of every sin are there. Now, by God's grace, not all of those seeds will germinate and not all of them will grow to the degree that they might, but they're all there. Why is our nation the way it is today? Because the seeds of all of those sins have always been there. Those sins have always been there. There are sins which once were illegal, which today are permitted. But they've always been there. There are evils which once were frowned upon which today are encouraged and endorsed, but they've always been there. There are evils today which are out in the open, which once were done in secret, but they've always been there. There are lifestyles which reject the man or woman that God made you to be. And they've always been there. And why have they always been there? Because they come from within. And that is what lurks within each one of us. Sin. Wickedness. Rebellion against God and his word and his ways. That's where our heart is, in our sin. So what's the answer? What is the only answer? What's the answer for our nation today? One thing, a change of heart. We cannot change our nation. God can change this one's 
heart. And this one. And this one. And this one. Who can change their own heart? No one. Only the God who first created you. And the Bible says that what he actually does is takes away your old heart and gives you a new one. This is why Jesus came into the world. That men and women and boys and girls, lost and dead in their sins, with wicked hearts in which all unrighteousness dwells, that such as they may be renewed, reborn, recreated, that they might be washed and cleansed on the inside, that all things in Christ might be made new and the old things pass away. And in Christ, you no longer now have a heart for sin, but for God and for righteousness and for Christ. Getting to the heart of the matter is why Jesus came. That's what he's doing in Mark chapter 7. Dealing with the matter of your heart is why he bled and died and rose again. If you want your heart changed, you must run to him and fall down before him. Acknowledge your sinful heart. Turn to Christ for salvation, for forgiveness, for cleansing, for a new heart, which he alone can give. This is the only hope for your children, for your unsaved parents, brother, sister, neighbour, colleague. So live and so pray, so as to win their hearts for Christ. Renewed in heart and mind and soul. This is the sinner's only hope. To be renewed in Christ. Christ.